0: All right, well, Mark chapter 9, Molly gave you a few moments to get out your Bible. I would ask you to do that again. Just turn to Mark chapter 9, pull it up on your phone. Our title for our message today is Redefining Greatness. So if you take notes, Redefining Greatness. And what we're going to talk about today is the way to greatness. And what we're going to talk about today is is Jesus is going to give us components that will make You great, and and most likely you're going to see these components and you're going to see and think of people in your life, maybe a mom, maybe another leader in your life who who may be great, who does what Jesus talks about. And, And you may admire someone and respect someone because they are great in the way Jesus talks about greatness. And the opposite is also true. As we go through this today, you're going to see some traits and some components that maybe you don't see in other people and therefore you don't see them as great. And so today, Jesus is going to give us the recipe for greatness. If you have these components, Jesus says you're great. If you don't have these components, you're not, right? So we all need to listen in for that. What are these components? What's the recipe for greatness according to Jesus? Look at it with me. We'll start in verse 30. It says this. It says, they went on from there, that's Jesus and his disciples, and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, "The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him." And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise." So Jesus is traveling and teaching, and he's teaching his disciples about his death and his resurrection. He's saying, "This is coming. Now, if you've been with us, even over the last few weeks, you've seen this take place. Jesus says, I'm the Christ. Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ. And and Jesus is going to explain to them, I'm the Christ. So here's what that looks like. And he's just starting to do that. And three times in the gospel of Mark, he does it in this way. He says, I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. Three times he does that. This is the second. And what's common about each time is that when Jesus explains his death and resurrection, The disciples' response is confusion, right? We know that in this case because Mark tells us, look at verse 32, he says, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So so in this case, we know they don't understand his death and resurrection because Mark says it, but we know it even more because of the disciples' response. Look at the response with me, verse 33. It says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house Jesus he asked the disciples what were you discussing on the way but they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest Now to be clear they're not arguing about who is greatest in society like who is greatest out there they're arguing about who is greatest in here like which one of us is greatest So they're not arguing about like who's greatest like Michael Jordan LeBron James Like, who's greatest, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey? That was the debate in the 90s, just so you know, right? They're not arguing about, like, who's the greatest scholar? Who's the greatest royal official? Who's the greatest religious leader out there? Like, who's the greatest in our time, in our day? They're not arguing about who's greatest out there. They're arguing about who's greatest in here. Like, are you greatest? It's 12 of us. Like, are you number one? Who's number two? Who's number three? Who is greatest? Now, remember... What just happened? What is Jesus teaching them? His death and his resurrection. Jesus says specifically twice, I am going to be killed. And right after that, they're like, okay, Jesus, you're going to be killed. Okay, I'm confused by that. My number one, you number one, you want to fight it out? Now, this is the equivalent, listen, of riding in an ambulance and taking selfies. Right? The EMT is over here doing compressions on the guy that's on his way to death. And there's a couple other people in the ambulance who are just like, cheese, oh, how do I look? Oh, I don't like that. Change the filter. Right? That's the insanity that's taking place right here. Now, now, what would you think Jesus would do in response to that? What would you do if people were taking selfies in an ambulance? Kick them out, Right? At least slap them and be like, guys, there's more important things going on here. Somebody's on their way to death. Like, stop taking selfies. Now, God is more gracious than me, thankfully, amen. Jesus is amazing, so he doesn't kick them out of being disciples. He doesn't think, maybe I chose the wrong guys. Like, how do you not understand? I just said I'm going to die. And you're like, who's greatest? Like, do you not get this? Jesus doesn't think about choosing different disciples. Jesus doesn't slap them. He teaches them. All right? He sits down. Verse 35, look at the verse. He sits down. (laughs) Guys, come here. Calls the 12. And he says to them, hey, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus uses this as a teachable moment, right? Maybe you have different views about Jesus, and when you read Scripture, scripture you feel kind of dumb. You feel confused, like the disciples. And maybe you even look at God's Word, an infinite God, who who grants you his word, a finite person who gave you 66 books of the Bible written by 40 plus authors over 1500 years who gave this book to you to point you not to yourself and not how great you are, but to him alone. And you take that Bible and you put it on your shelf or you come to church and you leave and go eat lunch and you think about all the stuff you gotta do and you never take your eyes off yourself and you never put them on God. You need to know if you're ever confused and put yourself at the center of the universe instead of god in his rightful place if that's ever been you god is gracious with you too he doesn't think i should have chosen somebody else how could you not get this i would say that jesus doesn't say that jesus sits down and says come here i'm going to teach you in my grace i'm going to teach you what does he teach them now we need some context he he says not just to be first to be great you should be last He says, you should be a servant. I could have stopped with just first, last. You get that, right? But he gives us an example. You should be a servant. And we need some context for what that means. We think of servant and serving as a concept, like people who serve. They would have thought differently. They would have thought about servants that they knew, right, in households, people whose whole life was defined by service to the people around them. Jesus says, that is what it means to be great. That is what it means to be first, And so we need some context. What Jesus is saying is very extreme. He's not just saying, hey, the one who is great, the one who is first, does a thankless job. He's saying, hey, the one who is great, the one who is first, they live thankless lives. Their whole lives involve serving. We need some context when we look at scripture. Do you know that scripture was written a long time ago 2,000 years ago, different time, different language, different country, and we need some context to understand the gravity and weight that Jesus is talking about here. We need that not just in Mark chapter 9. We need that throughout Scripture. It's so just kind of a side note. When you read Scripture, you need to understand different time, different culture different context how can i put myself not in my american culture in 2019 but how can i put myself there and sometimes we we forget that don't we we forget the context of scripture and therefore we lose some of the power of scripture it's kind of like when we go to another country say france and we go to another country and we get off the plane and we just start speaking to in, to everyone in english and when they look at us funny we're like don't you understand my language It's kind of like when we go to the pub in France and we ask for water and they bring us sparkling water and we're kind of like, I did not ask for this, I asked for tap water. It's kind of like when we ask to put on the the football game in the pub in France and they put on soccer and we're like, I said football, When we don't get the context of scripture, this is a side note, this is once for free, pro tip, right? We don't get the context of scripture, that's what we're doing. It's like, oh, like I should understand this in my context, serving, yeah, it just means serving people like I did yesterday, like I got my kid a glass of water. It's deeper than that, you see it? We have to put on the lenses that they had on in their day. It was a different time, different culture, different language, and Jesus is saying something radical. right? He's radically redefining what it means to be great. You live a life of service. You give up your time, your talent, your treasure, not just every once in a while, you live a life that does that. That's great. That's who's first. That's what he's saying in their day. That's what he's trying to get across in our day. This is a radical redefining. We know this in our day because we can look around and think of people that are great. Maybe a leader, a celebrity, maybe your boss who has greatness in your company. He has ranking And the way we see them as great is by how many people they have serving them. Have you ever talked to somebody in business and and they're talking about their their job title, their status, and how many people work under them? Like how many direct reports they have? You're like, you got 50 direct reports? Maybe you have this many assistants? Like, wow. I mean, that celebrity, they have drivers? They have people that drive them around? so great. I mean, they have maids? I mean, moms, can I get an amen? They have living nannies? That is, that is great. That would be great, right? We define greatness by how many people serve us. Jesus redefines greatness by how many people you serve, by how much of your life you give in service. Not by how much you have, but how much you give of what you have. Jesus is radically defining greatness. And it's such a radical redefinition that he has to do it again in the next chapter. A couple weeks, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. He's going to basically say some of the same things he's saying here. And he's going to tie greatness again to serving. Because we need to hear it in Mark chapter 10, just a chapter later. Because this is so counterculture to what we think of greatness to be. So Jesus is going to hit this again, but he's always going to tie greatness to serving. Now that's interesting, as I thought about this week, because I usually tie serving with guilt, not greatness. All right? Some of you may be feeling that right now, like, okay, Tim, this is the sermon where you say we should serve more. All right? It's Mother's Day, but I, and I feel like if great is serving, my whole life is serving, it's not just something I go and do, it's my whole life, I should serve more as a mom. I know, like, I should get off my phone and, and really engage my kids. As a, as a dad, as a parent, you might be thinking, like, I should serve my wife so she can serve the kids, so I can serve the kids. And you might be thinking, I should serve more. I should serve more in my family. I should serve more in my job. I should serve more in my community. I should, I don't serve in the church. I should serve, if it's greatness to serve, I should serve more. And you associate serving with guilt. You notice Jesus doesn't do that. He associates serving with greatness, not with guilt. He's talking about that that serving, it's an exercise in greatness. Listen, here's the thing about exercise. You can't just try it once and think it's gonna be great, right? You can't just try it every once in a while in your own strength, as a mom, as a worker, somebody in the church, and think, this should be great, why does it not feel great? I mean, I brought my kid milk when they wanted it. didn't feel great. I mean, I served in the church and I greeted and I put out the coffee and nobody saw it. Like it didn't feel great. And we feel guilt, but Jesus says, no, you should feel greatness, but it's an exercise in greatness. And just like exercise, it doesn't click the first time you do it. Like, do you know people who get excited about going to the gym? Ah, There's people, right? They exist. And it's not just like the CrossFitty people right there's just like regular people who like get excited about going to the gym and they do they post some selfies of them working out and there's some joy and there's some greatness associated with that right you ever seen anybody like this you ever talk to them and ask them like how is that possible I don't I I get guilty when I think about exercising you seem to think it's great if you ever talk to anybody like that, they will most often tell you, most likely tell you, hey, it wasn't always this way. It's a practice in my life. I remember the first time I went and did CrossFit and threw up. I remember the first time I went to the gym and had no clue what I was doing, and I said, don't take any pictures of me because I don't want this getting out, right? It happened over time. It was an exercise, a practice. In their life, at day one, it was kind of confusing, kind of not going great, kind of guilty, should go to the gym more often. And eventually, over time, it was built in. And now, three, four years later, they, they like working out. Serving is the same way. It's an exercise in greatness. It's something you have to practice. And my fear is, for some of us, we hear a sermon like this, and we just think, serving, I've Tried that. I've tried that. I don't think it's that great, Jesus. Like, I don't know if there's that much joy for me. And listen, you have to practice it. And so, part of the reason we give you opportunities at the church to serve is to exercise greatness, is to have an area in your life where you can exercise greatness, where you can participate in the greatness that Jesus talks about. So you can do it at church, but it doesn't stay at church. It leaves church and it goes into your work and it goes into your neighborhood and it goes out into our communities. It's not just fulfilling a task. It's not just because the church has needs. It's because we want to unleash you for greatness and we know that takes practice. We know that takes exercise. So question, how are you exercising greatness by serving? Do you have a place in your life, in the church, in the community, at home, in your job, where you have a a practice, a rhythm of exercising greatness? What is that for you? If you can't think of one specific area, again, the life of a servant where it's routine, it's part of your daily life, where you exercise greatness by serving, you need to add that into your life today. Maybe after church, you add that in by celebrating your mom or another woman in our church. You, you go grab a candle, you take it to somebody else. Just a small act I say, I wanna be great as Jesus defines it, not as our culture defines it, and I want to serve. What is that for you? Maybe you sign up to serve in our church. Maybe you do something this week intentionally to serve the people around you. Where's your exercise of greatness happening? Jesus is talking about greatness in a, a new way. And it involves serving, not being served. He continues to teach them in verse 36. And again, remember how this all started. The question at hand is hey, which one of us is the greatest? And Jesus could have stopped right then and said, listen, dummies, I'm the greatest, I'm the Son of God. I am the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who's gonna rescue humanity from their sin and reunite them in a relationship with God. Like, how can you not get this? I'm the greatest. I would have done that. (laughs) But Jesus is more gracious, so he continues to teach them. Look at verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he says to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me, the Father. Jesus is saying is, you want to be great, you want to be first, you serve, but you serve especially the most vulnerable. Like when you receive a child, when you accept a child, when you value a child, you receive Jesus, and you receive the Father who sent him. And again, we need some context Now, maybe you think children, they're always valued. Maybe not so much, right? In this day, they saw children more as property than individuals. It was understood that they were to be seen but not heard from. That people in this day were thought of for what they could bring to the table. Kids, what do they bring to the table? Not much. And so Jesus specifically, he doesn't just talk about a child. You notice this? He says, Hey, kid, come over here. I don't want them to get confused. I want them to see this. Here's a kid right here. You serve him, her, you serve me. The most vulnerable, not property, he has value. She's not a property for what she can do for our culture one day or today. She has value. And when you serve, especially anyone, but especially the most vulnerable, the child, who have been devalued in our culture, that's when you're great. Now listen, that's the context of that day. We don't have to stretch it too much for our day. And maybe when you see kids running around in this church, you think, oh, so cute, so valuable. Not everybody in our culture thinks that. You see it in abortion, where we talk flippantly about killing babies and it's a policy and not a person. You see it in big things like that and the way we devalue children. But you also see it in little things like showing up to a restaurant with a big family and getting those dirty looks. I got three kids. I've gotten them, right? Because Kids, what do they offer? They're just gonna mess things up. They're just gonna annoy us. And so they devalue children. We devalue children in our day, right? And Jesus is gonna say, hey, to be great, to be first, you serve everyone, especially the children. He redefines greatness. That's why we celebrate moms, right? We celebrate moms because their whole life is that of a servant to their kids because they are such an example of what this looks like one who serves the weak and the vulnerable and invest in the next generation the ones who will carry on a legacy for christians of christ and his name exalted that's why we celebrate moms it's a huge responsibility it's a huge role I just think about my wife. Again, we do have three kids. And when my wife is gone, no matter how many times I tell them, like, hey, mom went to the store. Mom had a Bible study. Mom went to go do this. 30 minutes later, after I told them that, they run through the house when they need something. And guess what they say? Mommy. And I'm like, son, I just told you. Mom's not here. And he's just like, Ma, it takes a second to register. Why? because it's programmed in his little brain that mommy's always there mommy's always around to serve me the most vulnerable the most weak they, they view moms that way because that's what they do listen the call of motherhood it is a great call do you see that when you're cleaning up the diaper when you're, when your kid does cry out mommy and you're just like can't you just do it yourself like Do you you see, can we redefine greatness to say, that means I'm great. I mean, if that is the indication of greatness, I am phenomenal. Because my kids expect me to serve them all the time. Jesus redefines greatness. And some of you are thinking, well, Tim, this is hard. This is so countercultural. It's so different. And listen, Jesus is not defining greatness. He's redefining it. Yeah, it's countercultural. Yeah, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute to our culture and our math of climb the ladder and you do you. And hey, it's actually better without kids because we can get more done. Jesus is redefining greatness. He's not defining greatness according to our culture. So yes, it is hard and it is difficult. Jesus is replacing all that is in place. He's redefining greatness. He's creating an alternate way of living. That's what he's doing. Just that. Pretty simple, right? Tim Keller says it this way, an author and pastor in New York. He says, though Jesus was rich, he became poor. Though he was a king, he served. Though he was greatest, he made himself servant of all. He triumphed over sin, not by taking up power, but by serving sacrificially. He won through losing everything. The gospel then creates a new kind of servant community with people who live out, listen, an entirely alternate way of being human. That's what Jesus is doing here. Feel hard? Feels like it rubs against? Like, Tim, I don't know if greatness really is serving and serving kids. I don't know if that really is great. It's hard. It's an alternate way of being human. <laughs> if you feel uncomfortable with it, that's normal. You should. We need Jesus' help for this. And so he continues to give us his help. Look at verse 38. John, one of the disciples, says to him, we kind of shift conversations a little bit, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus says, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So we kind of switched conversations, but if you give me a second, we're still talking about the same thing. We're talking about serving and less of self equaling greatness. See, John asked this question hey, how come somebody else cast out a demon? Like, why why is somebody else doing that? And the key phrase you should notice is the end of verse 38, that he wasn't following us, but he still did that. You see, what John is getting at, what the disciples are getting at is tribalism, is comparison. He was not following, he doesn't say, Jesus, he wasn't following you, yet he's casting out demons. He says he wasn't following us. Who's us? The 12. Which one of us is the greatest? the inner circle, the VIP, the elite. That guy, he's not a part of that. And he's casting out demons. Jesus, what is happening? And it's tribalism and it's comparison. And Jesus, says he's calling them to be great, to be first, he says, no, 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 you need less of self, less of comparison if you want to be great. Listen, we do this in our lives all the time. I do this with church. I look at other people, other churches, and I have in the past, and they're doing things slightly different than the way I would do them, maybe in a different denomination or lane than me, and I think, why? Well, how come they're casting out demons? How come they have so many baptisms? How come their church is getting so big? And I think we study the Bible, like we do things the right way, and Jesus, how come they're not with us, but how come you're blessing that? Listen, I was part of churches where that was the culture. And we did that a lot. And so I've had to own that and repent of that. And by God's grace, he's begun to change that in me to where I don't have to compare myself to other pastors or churches. I don't don't have to do that. I can celebrate other pastors and churches. Listen, as a church, that's what we're always gonna do. We're not gonna be so busy building our brand and our name and our building and exalting that and the little c church on our corner that we forget the big c church we're not going to look at other churches and be like how come you're blessing that jesus they're not with us and we're going to think man jesus praise god you're blessing that people are getting saved like people are coming to know jesus like we want to celebrate what other churches are doing we don't want to compare I get the opportunity every now and then to to preach at other churches, and I get that opportunity a couple times in the summer, this coming summer, and I take those opportunities for a few reasons. One, because they ask me. Two, because I get to brag on you guys and PBC. But three, I want to learn. Even if the churches are slightly different, like I'm not talking about heretical churches, I'm talking about churches that Bible-believing, they believe in Jesus, all those types of things... We're in the same lane. Maybe I would do this a little bit differently, but, but I go to brag on you. I go because they ask me, but I also go because I want to learn. What are other churches doing? How is God using other people that aren't in my crew to exalt the name of Jesus, right? And so I'm going to go, and guess what? One of those churches is in our neighborhood. They're in our central urban, urban core of our city, and I'm probably going to go preach there, and I'm probably going to look out in the audience and see a few people that used to go phoenix bible church and i'm gonna call them out in the middle of my sermon and be like why <laughs> did you leave don't you know our church is so much better is that what i'm gonna do no afterwards i'm gonna go up to him and be like man it's so great to see you how has god been using this church in your life that Man, I heard about you guys doing this. That's so amazing. Heard about your serving this way. That's so amazing because we celebrate others. We don't criticize others who are doing work in the name and for the fame of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says. He says, hey, the one who is not against us, they're for us. In fact, if they heal somebody in my name, if they cast out a demon, that's fantastic because they can't go right around to the other side and speak evil of me. He's saying when they win, we win. What if you thought about church that way? What if you thought about life that way? What if you thought about promotions that way? What if you thought about your friends that way? What if you thought about other moms that way and didn't look at the other mom whose kids are so well-behaved and think, how come, what? It's not that easy for me. they do homeschool or something? Like what? They probably had the money to pay for private school like, What if you didn't compare, what if you celebrated when other kids were doing well? What if you asked the mom, hey, can we meet for coffee and talk about how you do that? Because that is amazing. God bless you. What if we celebrated other people because we had less of self, because we understood true greatness? That's what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is redefining greatness. He wants less of self, but he also wants less of sin. Look at the next text with me, verse 42. Jesus says this. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame with two feet than be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of times where hell is mentioned, which you probably caught that, right? Jesus is continuing this conversation of greatness and being first. It's less of self, but it's also less of of sin, right? And he talks about the severity of sin for eternity and for right now. He talks about the severity of sin for eternity, that it is separation from God. Many people think, hey, hey, why is God so angry in the Old Testament, but Jesus is so loving in the New Testament? You need to know he's, he's just and he's loving all the way through the Bible, and Jesus is that. He, mentioned, he could have mentioned hell one time. I would have been more, more comfortable with that. Hell, hell, hell. He wants you to see the eternal severity of sin. You want to be great, you be less of self. You want to be great, less sin. Don't don't run to sin, run to the Savior. Because if you run to sin, there is eternal consequences, separation from God. And he wants you to know that. He wants them to know that. Less sin in others, less sin in you. First, he starts with less sin in others. Hey, if you're causing these, these little ones to sin, hey, we don't want to do that. Sin is severe. There's eternal separation. You don't want to do that. Some scholars think these little ones in verse 42 would have been children. He was just talking about children. Some scholars think it was childlike faith. Either way, kids have childlike faith. So we can just be safe to say he's probably talking about kids and new believers. But he's saying, hey, if you're causing somebody else to sin, that is severe. Don't do that. If you're causing somebody to sin with your legalism, again, you look at other people and they don't do things the way you think they should do them, and you have this super religious facade in your own life and standard that you can't even meet up to, but you expect other people to meet up to that, and you cause them to sin by thinking, hey, you're not good enough because you don't read the Bible the way I do. You don't come to church the way I do. You don't serve others the way I do. And in and, and legalism, you cause other people to self-righteous sin to try to fit into your crew. But also not just legalism and licentiousness. If you cause other people to sin because you think, I just do what I want. I'm free in Christ. Maybe you shouldn't drink around this alcoholic friend of yours. I'm free. I can do what I want. Like, stop trying to be legalistic, Tim. Maybe you shouldn't gossip when you know that person has really struggled with that in the past. And, and Tim, I can speak my mind. That's what I do. I'm extroverted. And Jesus is saying, no, don't, don't cause other people to sin. Be mindful of other people. Don't compare yourself to other people. Help them. Serve them by less of self, less of sin in your life and in other people's life and so again question is are you causing other people to sin specifically kids or people with childlike faith who maybe don't understand everything you understand they don't know where all the books of the bible are they they have to look in their table of contents right and you judge them and you think well man you're not living up to the righteousness of christ because you don't know where ecclesiastes is what's your problem you haven't studied the Bible enough. Are you living in judgment over other people, causing them to sin? Are you using your freedom in Christ with alcohol, with other things, to cause other people to sin? Jesus says, hey, that is severe. People are going to hell because of sin. Don't do that. Are you thinking about that as you interact with other people? Are you thinking about sin as you interact with yourself. Are you thinking about less sin in yourself? Jesus is pretty extreme in this as well. He says to cut off things that would cause you to sin. This word sin is interesting in this specific context. It's not just sin like in every other part of the Bible, like missing the target. That's what sin means, a perfection. Jesus specifically uses this word of beginnings of sin, like a path towards sin. Like, don't cause, don't give opportunity for sin in your own life or other people's lives. And so he's not just talking about the adultery, he's talking about the lustful thought. He's not just talking about the adultery, he's talking about flirting with that co-worker because she makes you feel good. He's not just talking about greed and debt and full-on bankruptcy, he's talking about looking on Amazon because you have Prime and thinking, I could get all this stuff in two days. And that just well up, that greed. Said, if I had these things, if I had that blender, if I, if I had these things, it would make my life easier. I would be happier. I would be like these other moms. I would be like these other dads. He's not just talking about the, the bankruptcy, he's talking about just Amazon Prime in your heart welling up in, in greed, the beginnings of sin. And that's why he says, cut it off. If your eye is looking at things, Cut it off right there. If your hands are starting to go towards things and your feet are starting to go towards places you shouldn't go, cut it off. I don't wait till there's separation and hell. Cut it off now, just the beginnings of sin. And so I would ask you, how are you cutting off things? This is a metaphor, it's not physical, cutting off, but how are you cutting off things? Like that girl at the gym that you fantasize about. How are you cutting that off? You go to another gym, right? Like those websites you browse and it causes lustful thoughts. Not adultery, Tim, but just some lustful thoughts like the beginnings of sin. How are you cutting that off? What what accountability are you putting on your device so you don't go to those websites? Like what times are you looking at your computer? Cut it off. You struggle with power and lording over people, Maybe that's your position at work. Maybe people look to you and and you get kind of proud of yourself and you get some power. How are you cutting that off? How are you at times voluntarily submitting yourself to others? I I want to cut that power off. I don't want to get big headed and arrogant and prideful. If you're gossiping, Around people, and you're just saying, man, this is what me and my friends do. We grab a glass of wine and we just talk about our weeks. And it just feels right. And these are my friends. And when I get around these people, that's just what we do. How are you cutting that off? You may need some new friends. Right? It's that serious. Jesus is saying it's serious because there's hell coming for sin. It's serious. So cut off the beginning of that. Don't let it get there for others in yourself. Lastly, he says something that may seem completely off topic, but he says and talks about salt and that everyone is getting some salt. And what he's saying is again, bringing us back to this conversation about greatness being first is less self, less sin. You're going to be salty, you're going to have flavor, you're going to be a preservative, you're not going to harm people, you're not going to cause them to sin, you're going to push them towards holiness. They're gonna be more thankful for the relationship with God. Why? Because they've interacted with you, someone who's serving, someone who's less of themselves and less of sin. You're gonna be salty if you're like this. Now, as we look at scripture, as we continue to read through the gospels, through the book of Acts, we see this. Jesus does what he says he's gonna do. He dies and he rises again. And the disciples don't quite get what it means to be great Serving less self, less sin. But when Jesus rises again and they get the Holy Spirit of God in them, they start to get what it means to serve. You read the book of Acts, you see them serving mightily. You see them not being about themselves, but being about the Savior. And you see 3,000 people come to know Jesus at one point. You see all these people come to know Jesus. You see the, the church rise up the first wave of this movement of Christianity, you see it start to change the world because people are salty, because it's different than everybody else in the culture. It's greatness on display. It's something that we celebrate 2,000 years later. Because when you get this, when you get true greatness, it changes the world, it changes your community, it changes your home, it changes your church. When you get this kind of greatness, It happened in that day. What if it happened again in our day? What if you who have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, if you know Jesus, you've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus has died for you. He has rose again in victory and power. He's given you his spirit so that you could be great, be less of yourself and less of sin so that you could change the world and continue to do so just like the disciples and Jesus did. That's the opportunity before us. And and some of you, greatness, you're like, Tim, I barely made it to church this morning. I don't feel great. I feel weak. And you need to know Romans tells us that just at the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. You feel weak today? You don't feel great? Christ died for you. You're confused today? Christ is patient with you. He's going to teach you. He wants to teach you and unleash you for greatness that you don't have within you, but he puts in you through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And so we're going to close today with communion. We're going to remind ourselves what Jesus is teaching them at the beginning of this passage. Hey, I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect. And guess what? I'm not going to just cut off my hands for sin. I'm going to cut off my whole body for sin. I'm going to die in your place. And we celebrate communion. We take the bread. We dip it in the juice of the wine. That's what we're celebrating is that even though we're weak, we can be great through Jesus. And So if you know Jesus, I'm going to invite you to come down the center aisle, take the bread, dip it in the juice or wine. Go back to your seat and spend a moment thinking about true greatness, less of self. Less of sin by the power of the Savior. Let's pray and then we'll take communion. God, I want to thank you for not only your message of greatness and serving, but your model. God, you did this. You are the greatest of all, but yet you served. And God, I pray that we would look to you as one who does that now through us. And that those who feel weak today, our moms who feel weak and maybe tired, our dads who feel weak and maybe tired of the grind of life, maybe anybody who feels weak because of sin and the beginnings of sin that have turned into full-formed sin in our lives that we haven't cut off and we feel weak, not great, God, you would help us to remember that our greatness is not in us, it's through us from Jesus and you would help us to know that now. God, as we get up and the second we come and we partake in communion, that you would bring just a whole nother level of your greatness into our lives, that we would repent and worship in response to your greatness that now lives in and through us because of the cross. Help us to do that now. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.